peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the Bridge of Sighs. the guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. I'm recording this introduction in March of 2020, during the coronavirus quarantine period. The story today involves somebody suddenly waking up in the middle of a dinner party they don't recall being invited to. However, the protagonist of our story is not concerned about social distancing. I imagine many of you are also in a stay-at-home mode right now, given the current situation, so allow me to help you escape. I invite you to release your present concerns of contagion and pandemic and trade them in for the distress of an unwilling dinner party guest. The past has an appetite. You open your eyes and find yourself in an unfamiliar room. It is furnished in the style of the 17th century and illuminated solely by candles. It is apparent a dinner party is in progress. You look at each of the guests in turn, but fail to recognize any of them. Everyone is occupied in an activity. Most of the guests are clustered together in small groups and engaged in conversation. The rest of the people present are seated at a large table, obviously enjoying a sumptuous meal. The tinkling of goblets and the sound of silverware on china punctuate polite conversations. Although everything seems right and proper, you begin to feel uncomfortable. No one takes any notice of you, which is strange considering the fact everyone seems quite at home except for you. It should be quite obvious to everyone present you do not belong at the party. Everyone should be questioning you about your presence. Yet they continue their specific activity as if you do not exist. You try to remember how you came to be at this particular place, but you cannot concentrate under the circumstances. Your unease begins to grow. You want desperately to ask someone where you are and how you got there, but you are afraid of looking foolish. It is all so dreamlike and surreal. You notice everyone present is dressed in a wide variety of attire, leading you to believe you are at a costume party. Then you realize your last memory concerned a party. This tiny connection with your past gives you hope and encouragement. Yes, you remember attending a party at your neighbor's house. You stepped outside for a moment to smoke a cigarette, You watched the cold collection of stars sprinkled across the sky. A brisk wind caused you to wince. You stuck your hands in your pockets to warm them against the chill air. A van pulled up. Two men emerged and walked toward you, one of them holding a map and asking for directions to a street you'd never heard of. As you engaged one of the men in conversation, the other disappeared from view. That is all you can remember. All else becomes speculation. You raise your head to examine the room and its occupants, hoping to gain a clue. You notice a young woman staring at you from across the room. She appears worried, anxious, and afraid. She is the only person present who has acknowledged your existence. She slowly walks across the room and sits next to you. You don't know why you're here or or even where you are, do you? She says, hopefully. You willingly admit your ignorance and she closes her eyes and sighs. You can see she is relieved, just as you are, to find someone in a like predicament. The woman introduces herself as Sandra Fisher. She proceeds to tell you about her last memory before she awoke to find herself at the bizarre dinner party. 
It seems she stopped at a convenience store on her way home from work in order to purchase a few items. As she left the store and walked to her car, she noticed she had a flat tire. She stooped to inspect it and can remember no more. She regained consciousness only a few minutes before you, but during those few minutes, she searched diligently for a telephone and was unable to find one. She also informs you the room does not contain electrical devices of any kind. When she tells you this, you scan the room and find Sandra's information correct. Furthermore, you notice the room is lacking the outlets necessary for electrical devices. You also find the room has no windows. At this point, you remember your cell phone. You remove it from your pocket and dial your home number. Although the battery is fully charged, the phone is not operating. You and Sandra huddle together and make a plan of action. You decide to exit the building and attempt to determine what part of the city you are in. If you find you are within walking distance of either your house or Sandra's, you will proceed immediately to that particular house. If you find you are in an unfamiliar section of the city, or, for some reason, walking home is infeasible, you will proceed to a neighboring establishment, such as a restaurant or service station, and find a telephone in order to call a taxi. You and Sandra leave the room and enter a hallway. You are immediately taken aback by what you observe. The hallway is incredibly long, stretching as far as the eye can see in both directions. You turn left at random and begin walking rapidly. The hallway does not contain any windows, but numerous doors line the corridor. Some of the doors are open and some closed. The open doors reveal dinner parties similar to the one you recently departed. You and Sandra decide it would be pointless to check any of these rooms for telephones. After walking for 10 minutes, the hallway opens up into a circular atrium. A fountain bubbles in the middle of the space and a door is visible in the opposite wall. You make your way to the door, but find it is locked. As you are puzzling over what to do next, two middle-aged men step up behind you and introduce themselves as Curtis de Trobriand and Andrew Welsh. The men are dressed in the fashion of the 17th century and seem courteous enough, but when you ask them to unlock the door, they flatly refuse. Your patience is at an end. You demand to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Welsh tells you in polite, cultured tones that he will eventually answer all your questions, but not at the moment. You begin threatening the man, first with bodily harm and then with police action. He remains unmoved. He calmly suggests you and Sandra retire to the adjoining rooms and obtain some rest. You check the construction of the door. It is solid, and you have no tools at hand to force it open. You don't see any windows. Feeling there is no other option open to you at the moment, you reluctantly comply with the request of your host. You are led a short distance away to a comfortable room. Your two hosts close the door, and you hear their retreating steps on the polished hardwood of the hallway. You reach for the doorknob, fully expecting to find you have been locked inside, and notice the door contains no lock. You exit your room and knock on Sandra's door. She invites you inside. Her room is a copy of your own. You sit down and begin a discussion concerning the situation. Sandra speculates some type of cult is involved. To support her supposition, she reminds you of the fact that kidnappings took place in a well-coordinated fashion on the same night. She points out the bizarre architecture of your prison, the ridiculously long hallways, the absence of windows, the lack of electricity, and the dearth of locks on all of the doors with the exception of the main door in the atrium. Furthermore, she notes that no such structure could go unnoticed unless it was extremely isolated or perhaps underground. In addition, she invites you to ponder the odd attire of the inhabitants and their antiquated mannerisms. You admit her conjecture sounds logical. 
She moves on to the next point of discussion by asking if you have any ideas concerning the possible motives the cult may have for abducting people. You tell Sandra it is your belief, although you have been well treated so far, that if the motives were beneficial to those being abducted, then there would be no need for the cult to use any method other than verbal persuasion. You ask her to consider the intricate planning required in order to abduct multiple victims on a single night, such planning being indicative of a large, well-financed organization. You indicate the accommodations and suggest, once again, the cult leadership have access to abundant financial resources. Lastly, you state your belief the cult may be involved in some type of slave trade. Sandra then turns the conversation to the possibility of escape. She mentions with optimism the lack of obvious weapons among your captors. Although discouraged by the absence of windows, she maintains a positive attitude concerning the door in the atrium. She points out it is unguarded and, although it is solidly built, it may be possible to somehow defeat the lock. As you and Sandra search the room for something that may help in this endeavor, you find a book on the nightstand. The book appears to be filled with the names of people. You consider it a guest book, although the term guest, in this instance, is wildly inappropriate. You hand the book to Sandra and continue searching for a tool to pick the lock. Sandra begins reading off names from the guest book. Occasionally, a name will sound familiar to either you or Sandra. The familiar names are, without exception, those of missing persons that for one reason or another were widely reported by the news media. You notice she has stopped reading. You turn around and see she has procured a pencil and a pad of paper and is writing something. Her face suddenly sags. You ask her why she is behaving oddly, and she tells you reluctantly that the word sacrifice is contained within her name. At first you are unconcerned by this revelation. Indeed, your first reaction is to ignore Sandra's discovery and continue your search for a tool capable of defeating the lock on the door in the atrium. You then consider the circumstances of the overall situation and feel the guest book may, after all, contain a clue that would assist you in unraveling the mystery of your abduction. You join Sandra at the table, inspect the pad of paper she has been using, and quickly confirm the fact that the word sacrifice is indeed contained in the name Sandra Cindy Fisher. On impulse, you hurriedly scribble your own name on the pad of paper. A sickening feeling begins worming within you as you cross out specific letters and find sacrifice is also contained within Christopher Frederick Acosta. You grab the guest book and look at the first name, Richard Mitchell Everson, and study it. You notice the word victim can be assembled from the letters of his name. You find the same can be done with the names Victor Simmons, Carol Olivia Morton, Stacy Amelia Ives, Vera Christine Mason, Nancy Violet Smith, and Michael Vincent Stewart. Your nausea increases as you peruse the list and find ablation within the names Richard Blair Norton, Brittany Pamela Olson, and Ronald William Blackthorne. You realize all the names have a word or words associated with sacrifice encoded within them. The word offering is concealed within Franklin Gary Forrester, Eric Grant Jefferson, and Jeffrey Scott Bingman. You find the phrase gift for the gods within the names Ginger Heather Stafford, Tiffany Greta Hodgson, Stephen Theodore Riggins, Steve Gordon Griffith, Gerald Timothy Gifford, and on and on. You thumb rapidly through the pages and estimate the guestbook contains hundreds of names. You look on the spine of the book and see it denoted as Volume MCXII. You are further alarmed when you realize that this is only the guestbook for Sandra's room. 
You wonder how many other rooms are contained within the eerie building, each one with a similar guest book. On impulse, you write the names Curtis de Trabriand and Andrew Welsh on a piece of paper. You study the names for a moment and make another unsettling discovery. The word distributor is contained within the name Curtis de Trabriand and dealer within Andrew Welsh. You come to the inescapable conclusion that you and Sandra will be sacrificed for some unknown reason and tell her as much. Sandra agrees with your appraisal of the situation and you both decide an escape attempt is in order. You open the door and scan the hallway in both directions. Although you hear the sound of parties in progress, no one is visible. You quickly exit the room and lead the way into the atrium. Again, no one is present. You move swiftly to the door. You turn the knob. You are surprised to find it offers no resistance. You open the door, only to find what appears to be a brick wall barring any further progress. You look at Sandra and see in her face an indication of her discouragement. A combination of rage and frustration wells up within you. You strike at the wall with a clenched fist and are amazed to discover your hand passes completely through the obstruction. You assume the brick wall is merely an illusion of some type, conjured up by a technology with which you are unfamiliar. Without hesitation, you step forward and walk past the threshold. The light suddenly dims and you feel a tingling sensation. You find it is similar to experiencing a mild electrical shock or inadequate blood circulation. The sensation lasts only a few seconds, and then you are through to the other side. You emerge into darkness, and therefore cannot see your surroundings, but almost immediately realize you are outside. You can feel a warm breeze on your face. You find this strange since you were kidnapped on a cold September evening. Nevertheless, the breeze exhilarates you with its promise of freedom. Now that you are outside, you are confident of escape. You wonder why Sandra hasn't followed. You wait for your eyes to adjust to the darkness. You hear sounds. Musical instruments are being played. You listen carefully and can hear drums, flutes, whistles, and bells. The music grows louder for a moment and then stops completely. As your eyes adjust, you are better able to perceive your surroundings. You can see you are in a small enclosure open on one side. You reach out, feel the walls, and determine the structure is made of stone. You look past the open side and see a sprinkling of stars, and that is all you see. No buildings, no trees, nothing. From this, you know the enclosure is elevated to a considerable degree. Cautioned by this knowledge, you slowly shuffle forward, feeling along the wall as you go. The breeze dies out. An insufferable stench makes its presence known. Gagging, you cover your mouth with your shirt tail and continue your shuffling gait. You hear rustlings. You see human figures momentarily silhouetted against the night sky. You tense, ready for fight or flight. Suddenly, from either side of you, hands clutch your arms. You struggle, but it is a wasted effort as your captors are powerful men. You are dragged outside of the enclosure where two more men grab either leg. You are lifted bodily into the air and placed on what appears to be a stone slab. Although both of your arms and both of your legs are held fast, your hands still have a small radius of movement. You feel the slab with your hands. In some places, the surface of the slab is covered with a viscous substance, and in other areas, a hard crust has formed. The noxious odor is overpowering. Other figures loom out of the darkness. You feel objects being laid on top of your chest. Suddenly, 
A familiar voice reaches out of the darkness and instructs you to cease your struggles. You recognize it as the voice of Detrabriand. You ask him where you are and what is happening to you. Because you are afraid, your voice is high-pitched. You are ashamed of this. Detrabriand informs you that the gathering is located atop an Aztec pyramid, and you are about to become a sacrificial victim. Although you are scared beyond description, you have the presence of mind to try and deter Detrabriand by telling him that the Aztec pyramids are provided with guards in order to prevent looters from stealing antiquities. You warn him that you will attract the guards by screaming unless he releases you. He assures you, no guards or tourists will interfere with the ceremony, because they do not exist, and in fact will not exist, for many hundreds of years. You ignore his whimsical reply and begin screaming the word help. Over and over you yell as loudly as you are able, until you become hoarse and can scream no more. Detrabrian tells you the only people listening are full-blooded Aztecs, not some New Age cult of sacrifice. He then asks you if you are at all knowledgeable concerning Aztec history. Under the circumstances, you feel it's inappropriate to respond to the question, and you opt to remain silent. Pursuant to his previous question, Detrabrian tells you that the Aztecs sacrificed a minimum of 20,000 people every year. He asks if you are familiar with the statistics concerning the population density, migration patterns, birth rates, agricultural output, and wildlife resources of the Aztec Empire. You feel a response would only encourage his insanity, so you say nothing. After waiting a moment, he tells you the area under Aztec rule could in no way sustain a population depletion of 20,000 people every year. He informs you that since the population under Aztec suzerainty was entirely insufficient to provide the Aztecs with their yearly allotment of sacrificial victims, it became necessary to provide the bulk of victims from the future. Furthermore, Detrabriand hints that due to the somewhat bizarre, one might even say occult, intricacies of time travel, such victims needed to meet certain requirements, particular names being but one. Additionally, he tells you it is only possible for the victims to be sent back in time on certain specific dates, the autumnal equinox being one such date. You are told that when you pass through the illusory brick wall, you actually passed through a time curtain. You are told Sandra tried to follow but was detained for a later ceremony. Someone is now leaning over you and making motions with their hands. You cannot identify the motions, and they seem to be repeated over and over again. After perhaps a full minute, you see sparks emitted near the hands of this person, and then a glow appears on your chest. Your brain dredges up the words, New Fire Ceremony, from somewhere in the recesses of your knowledge of history. Now your fear knows no bounds. The glow increases, and with it, the warmth turns to a sharp pain. You begin yelling at your captors, even though your throat is sore from the earlier attempt to summon assistance. At first you beg them to show some type of mercy. Then, as the pain increases, you screech obscenities at them. As the fire grows, it illuminates your tormentors. The priest who kindled the fire is dressed in black and has long, stringy hair caked with the dried blood of sacrificial victims. Although the pain becomes excruciating, you are still conscious and are vaguely aware of other people placing unlit torches on the flames, lighting them, and then carrying the flaring torches off into the darkness. At this point, you are no longer screaming anything intelligible. Only animal-like sounds are issuing from your throat in the fond hope that it somehow relieves a portion of the pain. It is your fervent hope to become unconscious as the pain becomes unbearable. 
You are partially relieved when the priest carefully scrapes the fire off your chest with a stone and into a receptacle of some sort. You are, however, still in agony and gagging from the smell of your own burnt flesh. Your relief is short-lived as the priest raises something above his head with both hands. Although it is difficult to see what he is holding due to the uncertain light, you know instinctively it's an obsidian blade. You are able to muster one final scream as the blade comes down. The glassy obsidian slices easily through the burnt remnants of your flesh. The priest skillfully maneuvers the blade underneath your sternum. This is the final vision allowed you. The priest holding your dripping heart in his outstretched palm. Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info, as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. The Past Has an Appetite by Edward T. May Recitation and Audio Design by James Allen May Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi.